Dara was a loving husband, a doting father, and a devoted son. All those things that are of historical interest. But as a ruler of men in troubled times, he must have been a failure. Long continued prosperity had unnerved his character and made him incapable of planning wisely, daring boldly, and achieving strenuously, or if need were, of wresting victory from the jaws of defeat by desperate effort or heroic endurance. The darling of the court was utterly out of his element in the camp. The center of a circle of flattering nobles and ministers knew not how to make a number of generals obey one masterly uh, will, obey one's masterly will and act in harmony and concert. Military organization and tactical combination were beyond his power, beyond Dara's power. And he had never learned by practice how to guide the varying tides of a battle with the coolness and judgment of a true general. This novice in the art of war was destined to meet a practiced veteran as his rival for the throne, which he did. I welcome all of you to this particular talk, which we have titled Dara Shiko from the perspective of public leadership. So I will start the presentation. Let me give you a brief outline of what can be expected in this uh, talk. We will start with uh, a brief introduction of uh, Dara Shiko. And then we will uh, talk about two distinct paradigms of uh, looking at somebody from the perspective of public leadership. We will also see how we can uh, apply the knowledge uh, of public leadership paradigms uh, on evaluating somebody's uh, historical role. And in this case, we will be looking at Darashiko's role in the uh, particular history of the Indian subcontinent. We will see uh, the perils or dangers of a lingering question of the sort of uh, what if, it goes like what if uh, Dara Shikho would have been the Mughal emperor instead of somebody like Aurangzeb. So we will look at that also towards the end of this discussion. And finally, we will share the sources, uh, the historiography on Dara Shikho for which, um, or rather upon which I have depended for this presentation. So the kind of questions that we will be raising and uh, engage with in this talk are like these. Uh, what sort of a leader was Darashiko? Uh, and what kind of emotional reactions did he evoke in people's minds, uh, including the people in, in his court, in, in the imperial court, uh, the nobility, members of the nobility, uh, army, and also common subjects like uh, peasants. Uh, we will also try to analyze his decision-making abilities uh, through certain historical examples. And we will look at his uh, military achievements, the extent of his military skills, uh, his skills as a uh, commander of an army. We will see how he used to react to emergencies and adverse situations. Uh, these are the basic questions uh, through which we will try to evaluate his role as a public leader, as somebody who was being trained and groomed to become 
the emperor of uh, Mughal India. So, as I said, we will start with this brief introduction to Darashiko. Here you can see on your screen uh, the full portrait of Darashiko. So, Muhammad Darashiko, Hanafi Kadiri, this is how he, uh, you, he introduced himself in um, a particular work that he composed called Safinat Ul Awliya. Uh, this was basically a collection of uh, lives and works of uh, different Sufi saints. Darashko was the eldest son, uh, as I'm sure uh, many of you will know, of uh, Shah Jahan and Mumtaz Mahal. And he was born in the uh, year 1650, according to the Gregorian calendar. He was the heir designate or the heir apparent uh, to the Mughal throne. He was uh, chosen by the emperor himself. The emperor Shah Jahan wished uh, Tarashiko to uh, take up the reign of the empire after him. And uh, another interesting fact about Tarashiko is that the name Tarashiko, which, uh, uh, which means majestic as Darius, you know, the uh, pre-Islamic famed Persian king. Uh, this name was given to uh, the eldest son of uh, Shah Jahan or Khurram by uh, Jahangir himself. Uh, Darashiko as a child and as a young boy had experienced hardship as a young prince um, prior to uh, the period when his father uh, Khurram, who became Shah Jahan, before Shah Jahan ascended the throne, uh, he had been uh, incarcerated, he had been thrown into prison along with his brothers uh, in the war of succession that followed uh, Jahangir's uh, death. And when uh, the father had lavishly treated uh, his eldest son and uh, through that sort of favor that he gained. I was talking about uh, the particular period in Darashiko's life uh, where Darashiko as a young man had been very lavishly treated by uh, his father, the Emperor Shah Jahan. And um, by the generous favor shown to him by his father, Darashiko ended up gaining and exercising tremendous influence uh, without earning the power or the exercise uh, or the or the influence that uh, he actually used to uh, have among the nobility in the court. Dara was a patron of Sufi saints. Uh, he himself was uh, initiated in the Qadiri order and he uh, was also uh, predisposed to the arts and uh, scholarship and uh, he himself composed quite a few uh, works which were uh, about mysticism, uh, theology, and also poetry. He was a man of letters himself. Tara died at the honorary uh, page of 44, uh, murdered by Aurangzeb's men when he was imprisoned. So we will look at um, public leadership paradigms there are two distinct paradigms that we will talk about here. Firstly, the Western paradigm, uh, which you know is heavily influenced by the views of Machiavelli, 
who wrote Il Principe or The Prince, talked about uh, how to gain, retain, and power. And uh, you have to also keep in mind that uh, when Machiavelli wrote uh, this particular treatise, he wrote it uh, for a very limited audience. The audience that he had in mind are the nobility in uh, his uh, country. But, uh, you know, when we talk about something like a Western paradigm for public leadership, it is by no means uh, something that is, uh, you know, a uniform body of thought. Um, it is basically uh, a collection of different perspectives, uh, but they have a distinct character uh, of uh, Western scholarship on them. And uh, in very recent times, this uh, particular field of uh, scholarship, leadership studies has emerged and uh, some distinct views have come up through them. You know, psychologists have uh, heavily dwelt on this particular subject uh, because they have done characterological analysis of uh, different individuals, especially charismatic leaders who have uh, uh, succeeded or failed in their endeavors of leading a country or an organization, etc. And uh, through this, a few things have come to us. Um, I've tried to uh, present here a distilled version of uh, those things and prominent uh, views on public leadership from the Western paradigm. Uh, so clarity of vision, planning part, uh, and destination where one wants to reach or arrive at the goal and uh, dynamic action that is associated with it. Uh, so how a movement will lead one towards that goal. These are the uh, basic things. These are the uh, criteria you can say through which a person, an individual, or sometimes even an organization that, that leads other organizations or a network of organizations are judged or analyzed in terms of their leadership quotient. The Western paradigm through its mainly through its psychological analysis, uh, has come to dwell heavily on the ability of an individual or an organization to build motivational narratives. So a person or an organization uh, which can build an effective narrative that motivates others who participate in the game called leadership, if I can use that term, uh, has more chances of becoming successful in that game. So if you can motivate us through uh, the narrative of your goal, of the endeavor that you have undertaken, then you are considered uh, to be a successful leader uh, according to this paradigm. And uh, there is another uh, very specific and distinct school of thought within the Western paradigm of public leadership, which talks about leadership as an emergent phenomenon. So uh, it uh, describes leadership as a phenomenon which uh, arises through the interactions between leader, the followers, and the context in which they meet each other and in which they interact with each other. So uh, these give us you know, useful tools to look at somebody uh, like a historical personality, for example, Darashiko, who we, we will be looking at today, um, to evaluate their uh, worth, their uh, role as a public leader because Darashiko was chosen by his father 
Emperor Shah Jahan to be the ruler of Hindustan, uh, the emperor of Mughal India after himself. Uh, so it is only pertinent for us to ask uh, the kind of questions that we have shared at the beginning of this talk. Chief of which is how uh, um, good a leader was Darashi. Parallel to this, we also have the Rajadharma paradigm, uh, which is which, which you can call a, a distinctly Indic paradigm. And uh, this particular way of looking at the concept of public leadership uh, or rulership or kingship uh, is based on something called Dandaniti. It was a distinct Shastra, most prominently found in Arthashastra, the only extant text, uh, only extant major text on Dandaniti Shastra in our times. The other texts which remain, uh, you know, which have come to us, uh, which have sustained the ravages of time are basically uh, commentaries on uh, Kautilya's Arthashastra, like uh, the Kamandakya Niti Sara, which is a commentary on uh, Arthashastra. But uh, the fact of the matter is that the Rajadharma paradigm is based on the Dandaniti Shastra, which uh, talked about how to acquire, maintain, and extend territories. And there's a false notion, uh, you know, among us that Arthashastra is something that talks about how to uh, increase wealth uh, and prosperity. Uh, you know, it also does those things, but its chief goal, its core is not those things. They might come as a sort of uh, corollary to the main goal uh, that uh, Dandaniti or Arthashastra pursues, which is the uh, way to, or ways to acquire, maintain and extend uh, one's territories, you know, for an administrator or a ruler. And uh, as you can see from the very name Rajadharma, it is a concept which is based on uh, the idea of dharma. And this can be understood, you know, the Rajadharma uh, paradigm of looking at public leadership or evaluating a leader uh, can be very well understood if you look at this uh, beautiful and succinct definition of dharma uh, given by Rabindranath Tagore in, in his essay, Brahman. Tagore says, and I quote, when duty is placed on a foundation of dharma, way above the petty self-interests and instincts, one finds room for respite and spiritual gains, even in war. You know, the prevailing general notions about Darashiko are that he was a champion of religious syncretism. Uh, he tried to uh, bring you know, Islam and uh, Hinduism at uh, a meeting point. Uh, he is also hailed as a multifaceted poet. He is described as a saintly prince and uh, also a tragic character. Uh, from the Mughal dynasty, who had a vision of India that uh, people say uh, is still relevant you know, in our times. He might be all of those things, but uh, the questions that we are concerned with in this particular exercise, in this talk, um, is uh, or, or are concerned with his role as a public leader, as a ruler, as an administrator. So the things that we will consider in trying to evaluate his uh, role as a public leader are as follows. Uh, you know, these are the things that you have to keep in your mind when you are thinking about Darashiko as a leader, as a ruler or administrator. Uh, firstly, Dara 
was a constant dara's presence with the emperor shah jahan was almost constant he uh, never left uh, the emperor the emperor's side it was only once when he was sent to kandahar um, that he had left the emperor's side but other than that he had all, always remained by the side of emperor shah jahan so this is the first thing that you have to keep in mind secondly uh, dara saw a very uh, you know uh, distinct uh, growth in his influence in the imperial court uh, and this was also thanks to the favors of the emperor uh, he was exceedingly fond of his eldest son and he uh, gave him high ranks he gave him uh, you know an unprecedented income and uh, you know a command of um, as many as 50000 horses which was unprecedented in his time so uh, dara saw his influence growing dara had a lot of uh, leisure time at his disposal and uh, so he could uh, focus on theological and mystical matters uh, he was predisposed to them he had a distinct interest in them and uh, these are evident from his writings and uh, translations or rather the translations that he commissioned through uh, you know hindu pandits and uh, people who uh, knew both sanskrit and persian he himself uh, was quite a polyglot he knew uh, uh, persian uh, hindi and uh, also a little bit of sanskrit finally the thing that you should keep in mind in uh, you know undertaking this sort of a task of evaluating dara shiko as a public leader is uh, the final years of dara's life uh, and also in a way uh, the uh, final years of shah jahan's life uh, you know the onset of the war of succession between the four brothers uh, dara shuja murad and uh, aurangzeb uh, and uh, you know this uh, war really started when in uh, 1657 in the later part of 1657 emperor shah jahan fell ill he fell seriously ill and a crisis arose at the capital and uh, dara started to behave in a peculiar manner uh, which we will uh, you know uh, look at at length uh, in the later part of this talk so these are the four things that you must keep in mind you know in terms of the periods which are important and also the aspects which are important to come to a meaningful analysis of dara dara shiko as a public leader dara shiko's role can be understood in many ways uh, we can look at him as a governor of provinces we can uh, look at him or evaluate him as a commander of armies because you should keep in mind that all the mughal princes uh, and even you know uh, the princes who are the sons of uh, or rather the grandsons of uh, the emperor are uh, trained from a very young age to be leaders of vast armies so they are expected to become uh, generals commanders of armies and they are sent away to distant provinces um, sometimes even beyond the borders of uh, the territories of uh, mughal india to take care of certain uh, troubles uh, such as invasion or even you know uh, provinces which are situated far away from the capital where 
people have mutinied or there is a rebellion going on. So people are trying to get away from the canopy of the Mughal rule. Uh, in such scenarios, uh, the Mughal princes were sent uh, either as governors or as uh, commanders of armies or as both to take care of those troubles. So we can also uh, evaluate Darashiko's role as a public leader uh, if we try to look at him as a commander of armies. The third thing is uh, to look at his influence, the kind of influence that he exerted upon the nobility and uh, even you know, the officers of the army uh, and also uh, you know, theologians who were present at the court. So the important thing to remember here is that uh, in the special scenario of the uh, Mughal court at the time of Shah Jahan, uh, Dara Shiko was second only to the emperor in terms of influence at that court. Darashiko can also be looked at from the perspective of how good a son he was to his father. He can be evaluated as a husband and as a father variously. The things that we are mainly concerned with are the three factors on the left side of the screen. So as Darashiko as a governor of provinces, as a commander of armies and uh, what kind of influence he exercised upon the people at the court. So we will look at Dara um, at the Mughal court. The first thing that you have to consider here is that there is no concept of primogeniture among the Mughals. So uh, primogeniture is uh, the idea which dictates that the firstborn male child will uh, become the uh, heir of the throne for a dynasty. That sort of concept was absent among the Mughals. So uh, the accession to the throne was uh, inevitably determined by bloody feuds, bloody conflicts. And uh, whoever was the fittest to survive that sort of a bloody conflict uh, would become the king, would become the emperor. And the Dara, this was uh, you know, a, a, a wise move by Dara, we can say. Uh, he followed in the footsteps of uh, his uh, grandfather and great-grandfather. Uh, Jahangir and Akbar, respectively, uh, and he displayed uh, you know, characteristics of asceticism and piety following them. And through these, uh, Dara tried to build his image. Really. Uh, he was trying to get legitimacy as a divine sovereign, which was which had by Dara's time, or rather even uh, by Shah Jahan's time, uh, become a very, very important notion of kingship for the Mughals. Now, contrary to the popular idea of our times, Dara was by no means a liberal, neither was he uh, you know, a promoter of interfaith harmony as we understand these concepts of these terms, liberal and interfaith harmony, uh, these two terms. Um, the way we understand these concepts today, Dara was neither of them. Tara was not a liberal person. Um, he did not advocate liberalism and he did not promote interfaith harmony the way uh, some uh, champion of interfaith harmony would practice the concept today in our times. And like uh, some other Muslim individuals of his own era, Dara was intrigued by Hinduism 
uh, and he had the leisure of course he was not as busy as his other uh, you know um, three brothers and also not um, his father shah jahan when he was uh, a young man uh, he had to busy himself with the work of uh, the governor uh, of provinces and he also led many campaigns um, he uh, got involved in the war of succession uh, which kept him busy so uh, like unlike many other uh, mughal princes dara had the scope the time to indulge in uh, matters of theology and mysticism and uh, satisfy his intrigues uh, regarding hinduism and this is a very important thing dara shiko never renounced islam when he was engaging with hindu yogis or sanyasis when he was getting uh, when he had commissioned the uh, vedanta the upanishads uh, to be translated into persian he engaged with the ideas that were contained in the vedanta but he never renounced uh, his faith in islam he was uh, a professed uh, muslim uh, a, a sufi muslim and he always introduced himself as a hanafi which is uh, you know a very prominent sunni muslim sect most prominently present in the indian subcontinent and also he presented himself as a disciple of the qadiri sect of the sufis dara uh, had been seeking to arrive at a universal font of tawhid tawhid is the islamic concept of monotheism okay the concept of monotheism is present in different religions of the world but uh, most specifically it is the islamic concept of monotheism or tawhid which dara was trying to find out in other religions and he wanted to promote the idea of uh, this monotheism this uh, very distinctly islamic concept of monotheism or tawhid uh, among the learned people and his hope was that if learned people had uh, you know come to respect this concept of tawhid uh, then uh, other people the commoners will also in time uh, follow it and uh, it was mainly with this goal that he was Uh, trying to find out the reflection of the islamic concept of monotheism or tawhid in the other religions and uh, he was by no means unique he was not the only person in doing this exercise or undertaking this endeavor uh, there were other people who were trying to do the same thing one of these prominent peoples um, uh, are uh, is uh, sheikh sufi who also attempted a similar thing what was dara like when uh, he was playing the role of uh, a governor of provinces and mind you he was made the governor of several provinces uh, such as allahabad um, punjab multan and later on he was also given the governorship of um, uh, bihar he was always ruling uh, these long settled and rich provinces of the mughal empire he never had to deal with the more problematic provinces uh, something like deccan maybe where uh, aurangzeb was very frequently sent and uh, dara uh, because he was ruling at these um, uh, easier provinces uh, had also the chance to not be physically present in those provinces himself uh, he could spend his time at the court by the side of his father the emperor shah jahan and he was ruling uh, mostly through deputies 
he had uh, employed them to be his representatives and he would direct uh, the matters through them so he never administered these provinces directly so like i said that all the provinces that he was uh, given to rule uh, were the sort of easier provinces you can say that uh, because uh, rebellions and political strife was less likely in those provinces because these were annexed to the mughal empire a uh, long time back in the history of the dynasty the mughal dynasty and these were also very fertile regions you know uh, the almost the central part of the uh, northern india like uh, as we uh, call it in indic terms aryavarta uh, punjab and also modern day up haryana these areas was were under uh, the governorship of dara and these were very fertile rich regions how was dara like when he played the role of a uh, military commander that is also a question that we can ask and we should ask so uh, the interesting thing to note here is that it was only once in his life that dara was sent to conduct a military campaign and this was during the third siege of kandahar and there are also very uh, disheartening uh, accounts of how dara conducted himself uh, in the camp when he was leading this campaign uh, but we will come to that later on uh, what happened uh, due to his absence from uh, you know all these campaigns which were led by uh, mostly by his uh, brothers and also other uh, officers who, who were made into generals commanders of the army to to uh, take care of the troubles which were brewing at different provinces or at, uh, at the borders uh what happened through that is that dara lost touch with the active army he never got to you know lead the campaign uh with a real army apart from that one time and even there his records are not very hopeful so he had uh, practically no experience in the art of war and uh, he was also made unfit for the bloody war of succession as a result of his loss of touch with the active army and his inexperience uh, at leading campaigns what sort of influence did dara exert on the people present at the court immense you know uh, unlike his brothers he was never sent to these provinces uh, which were given to him uh, to govern and he also got the time uh, got a lot of time actually because he did not have to spend his days uh, commanding a campaign Uh, so most of his life he remained at the court uh, by the side of his father the emperor and he grew a taste for flattery what happens with these cases usually is that people uh, uh, try to serve their own interests you know people at the court uh, by simply flattering uh, an influential person and they they were no fools they could see that the uh, aging uh, emperor was heavily dependent on uh, this son of his darashiko and uh, darashiko became a sort of mediator between the emperor and uh, all these people at the court but uh, this sort of influence was only nominal because there was no real experience backing dara uh, through which he could derive this power this influence it was only um, at his father's name you know he was ruling or rather he was indirectly uh, managing all these people at the court by his father's name and uh, you know so it was a deadly combination for dara or for anybody 
for that matter, who uh, is supposed to become the empire, the, the, the ruler of an, of an entire empire, a vast empire like India, father's favor uh, and the flattery of the courtiers. These two things are not good for somebody who's looking to be the emperor himself. Looking at Dara's character, you know, if we look at the evaluations from uh, different historiographical accounts, uh, this one is uh, from Sir Jodunath Shorkar, uh, and I quote, Aurangzeb in later life spoke of Dara as a proud, insolent to the nobles and ungovernable in temper and speech. But you can uh, um, you know, very legitimately ask that uh, Aurangzeb was Dara's mortal enemy and therefore why should we depend on uh, a testimony of this sort, which comes from uh, Aurangzeb. So you can also look at the testimony from other people and especially, you know, good men, people who are considered um, to be loyal officers to the throne. And this particular quote helps you understand that. I quote, the detailed account of his siege of Kandahar when Tara was sent to this uh, campaign of Kandahar, uh, written by an admirer, this particular person who's writing uh, this account uh, was really an admirer of Tara and was very loyal to the throne, to the emperor. Uh, the de detailed account of his siege of Kandahar written by an admirer shows him in, in the odious light of an incompetent braggart, almost insane with conceit, capricious and childish in the management of affairs. So he likes flattery and he, and he likes to naturally boast about his uh, you know, non-existent powers and glory. So this is the kind of uh, picture that we get of Dara Shikwa as a person as a military commander, as a leader. And, uh, you know, if you look at the times of crisis, then Dara's character comes out even more vividly, you know, because then we get to see the kind of reactions Dara had, the kind of actions Dara took in order to deal with the exigencies of those uh, serious problems at his hand. And that sort of situation arose uh, with, the, um, with the aging Emperor Shah Jahan falling ill. He fell seriously ill uh, sometime in the later part of 1657, as I was saying. And here is a quote from uh, Supriya Gandhi's work. Uh, I quote it in full. In an attempt to quell hearsay and speculation about the emperor's possible death, Dara blocked most courtiers from all access to the emperor or his news, also detaining his brother's agents at court. Dara ordered for Mir Abu al-Hassan, Shuja's representative, one of the representatives of his brothers, to be shackled and pilloried and even threatened to rend the man's limbs. Such acts, Gandhi goes on to say, planted in the kingdom's soil the seed of facade, a word connoting corruption, sedition and chaos, a threat to the state and to Order. So, Supya Gandhi has translated and quoted uh, some accounts uh, written by people who had experienced that particular time of Shah Jahan's illness and the problem that arose in the wake of it. I think this particular account is from somebody called Masu. So, this is the kind of action that, uh, you know, uh, completely berserk. He had gone completely berserk and he was uh, at his wit's end 
and therefore he was taking these rash actions, um, stopping courtiers to uh, visit uh, from visiting the uh, emperor and stopping his brother's agents from uh, gaining news of the emperor's health, which easily, uh, you know, uh, which easily created the impression that the emperor was perhaps dead. And uh, therefore, Darashiko was uh, ruling in his name in his stead. And uh, he did not want that news to spill out. He was simply taking his time, biding his time to prepare the situation for his um, ascendance to the throne. This one also is very, uh, you know, telling of Dara's character. Um, again, from History of Aurangzeb, Volume 1, uh, written by Sir Jodhunath Shaltar. And I quote this. Dara was a loving husband, a doting father, and a devoted son, all those things that are of historical interest. But as a ruler of men in troubled times, he must have been a failure. Long continued prosperity had unnerved his character and made him incapable of planning wisely, daring boldly, and achieving strenuously, or if need were, of wresting victory from the jaws of defeat by desperate effort or heroic endurance. The darling of the court was utterly out of his element in the camp. The center of a circle of flattering nobles and ministers knew not how to make a number of generals obey one masterly uh, will, obey one's masterly will and act in harmony and concert. Military organization and tactical combination were beyond his power, beyond Dara's power. And he had never learned by practice how to guide the varying tides of a battle with the coolness and judgment of a true general. This novice in the art of war was destined to meet a practiced veteran as his rival for the throne, which he did in the uh, body of, in the person of um, Shah, uh, in the person of Aurangzeb. This is what Dara is like during the war of uh, succession between the brothers. Uh, his history during the War of Succession clearly proves that with all the wealth and influence that he had uh, come to exert through the years due to the favors bestowed on him by his uh, caring father, he could secure very few devoted followers or efficient lieutenants when the real need for them actually came during this War of Successions. And... Uh, you know, the people who were self-seeking, who were uh, working to fulfill their own interests, the mercenary of the army and the court, must have recognized uh, that in following him against the astute and experienced Aurangzeb, they would be only backing a losing side. So these observations are made by uh, Sajodunath Shorkar, but, uh, you know, these are dependent on uh, certain facts, which I will try to present. So... Dara had uh, apparently gained a lot of influence uh, because his father was particularly kind to him. He had given him a very high rank and the commandership of 50,000 horses and uh, titles. But all of those things came to nothing because he lacked experience in the practical day-to-day -day business of rulership, of administration and so on. So this is the... Uh, actual worth of the influence that he seemed to have gained over the nobles at the court. He was firstly no judge of character. And this is evident from several instances, some of which are also recorded by 
foreign travelers like Francois Bernier, a French traveler. Men of ability and self-respect must have kept away from uh, a person like Dara, who was a vain and uh, vain person, uh, always boasting about his non-existent glory, and also uh, as a master who was injudicious. And therefore, no one was willing to back this losing sight in the war of succession. No one was ready to back Dara Shikor. And he also, uh, you know, experienced some failed missions represented by the wrong people. He sent the wrong people as emissaries to conduct certain missions, and those failed pathetically. And Dara's image among his brothers and the nobility, as you can understand, uh, are strewn by words like foolish and uh, idiot without reason, God forsaken apostate. All the uh, you know, uh, pejorative uh, ideas that people can garner from from the conduct of such a people, and this is exactly what his brothers and other people at the court thought about him. Now we come to this question of what if, uh, and the kind of perils uh, that are involved in engaging oneself with such a lingering question. You know, this is really about romanticizing the possibility of Dara's victory in the War of Succession. So what? Would have happened if Dara had won the war of succession and instead of Aurangzeb, if he had become Hindustan. So, the first question that we should ask while dealing with such a, a hypothetical question is whether Dara actually had any kind of vision for India, the, the territories that he was about to rule. Did he have any vision for that? Dara had only a very clear vision about how his personal brand would look like. And he depended only on popularity and image. He was the darling of the people at the court. Uh, they flattered him. And also some sections of the common people really loved him because of uh, you know, his mediation uh, between them, their complaints, and the emperor. Uh, but he certainly lacked a vision for a political vision for ruling a vast country like India. And following his grandfather and great grandfather, he attempted to present himself as a divine sovereign. Okay, this was a pet project of Darashiko, and uh, this is this was also connected to building his image as somebody who would be seen as a legitimate ruler, somebody like uh, Jahangir or Akbar. And Darashiko completely lacked any administrative skill and political vision, uh, which is why he had no real capacity to rule over his diverse subjects in a vast country like India. The only scenario, you know, if we go on to consider this hypothesis further, uh, we will see that the only scenario in which Dara would have succeeded uh, in the war of succession is the absence of any rival brother, any rival male heir, possible male heir. In that case, Dara might have had rule for a few years, maybe a few decades, but with a very, very uh, palpable, great possibility of mutiny or coup d'etat uh, by the nobility uh, or even invasion by foreign powers. So these were very distinct and real possibilities if uh, Dara had become the king after winning the war of succession with his brothers. Of course, literature and arts might have flourished for a few more decades, 
before the eventual fall of Mughals. Why I say eventual fall of Mughals? Because of the great possibility of the mutiny or kudita or the invasion. And also because of this very important last fact, uh, the religious orthodoxy uh, was looking for a face in the Mughal court because of uh, you know, Dara's coquetry with uh, Hindu thought. They were trying to find out a face from the four brothers, from among the four brothers, who would become uh, a, a face of the uh, holy wars that might have become possible or necessary. So, uh, which it would have eventually found in somebody or the other, even if Dara had no other uh, male rivals, if, if he had no brothers, he had Roshanara, the sister, who bagged Aurangzeb, and um, you know the mere existence of such uh, relatives would have uh, been easier for somebody from the family to be propped up as the face of the religious orthodoxy. And it would have eventually come to a strife, a bloody conflict. So I will end this talk with the sources that I have used, the primary and secondary sources, mainly uh, through translations for the primary sources. Uh, so firstly, by Supriya Gandhi, there's this uh, very uh, important book called The Emperor Who Never Was. This was very recently published. Another one uh, very important uh, reference is uh, by Sir Jodhunath Shorkar, History of Aurangzeb. In this case, I have referred to the first volume and uh, a biography of Tarashiko, uh, a well-referenced one, uh, written with um, you know, a flair for lit literary style. Uh, called Darashiko, the man who would be king. Uh, also, uh, I have depended on the descriptions found in Benier's uh, account, the death of Darashiko, and also some translations of Dara's own words, uh, own works, Majmal Bahrain, or the confluence of the two seas, by which he means uh, Islam and uh, Hinduism, purportedly, and also uh, Dara's work. What would have been had Dara Shiko actually managed to? Suppose there wasn't an Aurangzeb or something happened and people conspired against Aurangzeb and Dara Shiko indeed did become uh, the emperor of Hindustan. Do you think the way he managed, and like as you've rightly shown, he just wasn't a commander or an administrator or anything? that the Mughal Empire would have perhaps fallen apart sooner and the Marathas would have gained a foothold. So we would have actually had a strong Hindu empire sooner. Second is, perhaps would it be fair to say that given what he was doing, trying to sort of, you know, syncretize Islam and Hinduism, which we were all taught is like a very good thing. But would it be fair to say that there would perhaps have been more conversions of Hindus to Islam? So these are the two what is. Would we have had you know, the collapse of the Mughal Empire sooner and two, would we have had more conversions had he come on board actually than what we are, you know, led to believe otherwise. Thank you. It is uh, perhaps difficult to speculate what would have been the alternative in terms of, you know, uh, the powers that sought to fill the vacuum at the center, whether it would be the Marathas or the Sikhs or maybe even 
you know, uh, the other power, the uh, foreign power of the British, uh, which was also um, fast becoming relevant for the Indian scenario. Uh, that is difficult for me to speculate, but like I was uh, trying to uh, engage with this question of what if uh, Darashiko had no male rivals, uh, if there were no Aurangzeb, Shuja, Murad, uh, what would have happened? Uh, and uh, my feeling is that uh, the uh, Mughal dynasty would have fallen apart in a few decades anyway, because the, uh, the, the troubles uh, that led to, you know, the, the factors rather that led to this war of succession, which is more or less like a very uh, repetitive uh, trope uh, for the Mughal uh, dynasty uh, because of the absence of primogeniture, the practice of primogeniture among them. Um, but specifically for uh, you know, the case of Dara and his brothers, there was this feeling among the Islamic orthodoxy present at the court that there is nobody to back the vision of the orthodoxy. And therefore, they had a great anxiety um, as to who would be their leader. And so, um, somebody or the other would have been propped up by uh, uh, some relative uh, close or distant of uh, Darashiko. Uh, for example, I, 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 I will again cite the case of Roshanara, uh, sister of Darashiko, uh, who backed Aurangzeb and who hated uh, uh, Dara's guts and all those things that Dara stood for. And therefore, uh, somebody would have surely been propped up by a member of the family. And uh, a feud would have inevitably ensued and eventually uh, the thing would fall apart. Now, coming to the uh, second question, I think it's very interesting and I'm glad that you raised it. You know, uh, my feeling is that you can look upon Darashiko as some sort of a second avatar of uh, a reincarnation of Akbar. And uh, as a result of Akbar's uh, sort of uh, policies towards uh, Hindus and also Christians, other religions basically, but most uh, prominently towards Hindus, was that uh, a lot of uh, Rajput uh, chiefs, Rajput kings, had become soft towards the uh, Mughal dynasty. And uh, this procedure uh, would have continued if uh, Darashiko had come to power. And this would have uh, perhaps uh, you know, been applied in other areas of the, uh, of the uh, empire, uh, maybe in the Northeast and uh, also uh, in the Deccan. And that would have uh, been you know, a, a cause for bringing more and more provinces within the uh, governorship of some or the other Muslim ruler, if not uh, of a Mughal ruler specifically. So this is what I have to say. Thank you for an informative and uh, actually thought-provoking lecture. So there are some questions that arise. First of all, in one of your slides, you had characterized uh, Jahangir as uh, you, you had said that Darashiko had tendency towards asceticism and in which he resembled Jahangir. But as far as I remember, Jahangir was not, uh, you know, too deep into religion or anything like that because he was more into substance abuse, if I remember correctly. And uh, 
the other question is uh, how was dara perceived as uh, by uh, by the hindus because you know that rajput forces were the mainstay of the mughal empire and uh, it's rather surprising that they all opted for uh, the puritan aurangzeb whose uh, ideas on religion were pretty clear by that time these are the kinds of questions that arose in my mind when you were uh, talking about all these things so if you could throw some light on them sure i'll try uh, thank you for these questions firstly about jahangir when i said that uh, you know he was uh, trying to uh, get at this creation of an image for a divine sovereign um, it can be done in many ways you know you don't have to project yourself um, as uh, somebody who uh, who uh, who is a very religious person although there are um, uh, accounts uh, recorded accounts of uh, jahangir making uh, numerous visits to the ajmer sharif darga uh, the darga of uh, so he said minuddin chishti right and uh, also akbar it may thing for you to uh, think about uh, just like akbar jahangir had also made a public uh, statement of abstaining from animal flesh so these are the kind of things that uh, jahangir projected to the public in order to create that sort of a divine sovereign kind of uh, image for himself and uh, you know uh, dara took after the, these two and your second question was about uh, what was the perception of dara among uh, the hindus especially uh, rajput so when i was referring to the nobility present at uh, the imperial court uh, you have to consider that this nobility is uh, you know represented by both hindus and muslims and uh, there was most prominently uh, the raja jai singh Uh, who was uh, a very trusted commander of the armies he had at his disposal um, some 20000 horses uh, which is a very uh, high ranking officers uh, prerogative if i'm not wrong uh, so jai singh was uh, trusted by both uh, tara and the emperor shah jahan uh, they had sent uh, jai singh to quell the uh, rebellion by shuja in the bengal province and uh, jai singh was a very shrewd man he could uh, very easily see through the weaknesses of darashiko and he uh, he bided his time uh, you know he did not immediately act upon the orders from the imperial court uh, even though darashiko had uh, repeatedly requested him to immediately go and aid his son uh suleiman shiko i think uh, uh, to uh, go and quell the uh, rebellion by shuja so uh, if you look at the other courtiers they were all very very skeptical about dara shiko's possibility of becoming uh, the eventual emperor of the uh, of the empire uh, jai singh had considerable influence among them especially among the hindu courtiers so you can gain some sort of an idea from the skeptical attitude that jai singh bore towards uh, darashiko and his possibilities of actually becoming an emperor through this ek mera ek sawal hai ki bharat ne kho jo serial dt word par aati thi us par is par us par us pe is par pura ek dikhaya gaya tha 
और उसमें काफी कायर के तौर पर चीज दिखाया गया था ट्रिब्यूट के तौर पर कि एक बार उन्होंने बने अपना राज्य छोड़कर के भाग गए थे उसमें एक बार भी दिखाया गया था कि औरंगजेब को हत्या करने की मतलब प्लानिंग थी फिर उसको औरंगजेब को पता चल गया था तो अच्छा उसके बाद एक तो इस पर थोड़ा प्रकाश डाल दीजिए और दूसरा है कि जजिया कर जो था कि अगर मतलब ये जो मतलब ये थे मतलब दारा सिको रहते तो क्या मतलब इट विल कंटिन्यू पहली बात और दारा सिको रहते तो दारा सिको के बारे में कहा जाता है कि फियरफुल नहीं थे तो क्या हिंदुओं का शासन थोड़ा जल्दी आता या फिर क्या होता इस पर अगर कुछ लाइट डालते तो थोड़ा ज्यादा सहूलियत होती थैंक यू फॉर दिस क्वेश्चन एंड इट इज इंटरेस्टिंग to look at uh, the popular depictions of darashiko uh, that itself can be a topic of a lecture uh, and we can dwell at uh, that particular thing from, uh, at some length uh, you have mentioned bharat ek khoj but i also um, can mention the case of upanishad ganga you know series the tv series which uh, was produced by um, the chinmay mission and uh, it was uh, serially presented uh, produced uh, during 2011 12 uh, those years or maybe between 2012 and 13 something like that uh, so so in most of these depictions dara is shown as uh, you know all those other factors that i have not talked about firstly you know uh, dara as a devoted son dara as a pious man dara as a champion of uh, the arts and philosophies mysticism theology and so on uh, but whenever dara is shown as somebody who's conspiring at uh, uh, you know the murder of one of his brothers uh, or trying to quell the rebellions of uh, the three brothers that is not at all wrong so uh, as you can understand he uh, is located in agra um, he is only moving between shahjanabad delhi and uh, agra so he is located at a central location of the uh, of the empire and all his uh, brothers are advancing on the capital from the three sides uh, of the indian subcontinent shuja was advancing from bengal aurangzeb was uh, advancing from the deccan and there was murad from gujarat so uh, there was considerable pressure on dara and therefore um, he uh, tried everything that he could do in order to quell uh, these rebellions and he tried uh, conspiracies he tried to dissuade his brothers by giving them false news he uh, firstly he tried you know there's a very uh, interesting uh, incident that happened with aurangzeb so there was this person called isa bek who was an agent of uh, aurangzeb and because all these three brothers aurangzeb murad and shuja they were far removed from the capital because they were governing they were either governing the distant provinces or they were leading some campaign or the other uh, for example uh, aurangzeb was mostly busy with the campaigns at southern region of the country uh, in deccan Uh, dealing with the marathas and bijapur and golconda all these places so uh, these brothers had their agents at the court from whom they used to get news of the um, capital but mostly about uh, you know the well being and health of 
emperor, their father. And whenever there would be some inkling of uh, the emperor falling ill, then uh, at least uh, Murad and Aurangzeb, who uh, you know bitterly hated Dara, they were very very resentful from their childhood, um, and uh, also by uh, the sister Roshanara, they would advance uh, towards the towards the capital to capture it. So uh, Isabeg was one such agent of Aurangzeb and. Uh, this person was uh, firstly stopped by Dara from visiting the emperor and getting first-hand news and sending them, which was a very bad mistake, which was a very bad move, in my opinion, because that immediately arises suspicion in the mind of uh, not just the brothers, but also among other courtiers present at the imperial court. And uh, news started to spread fast in the capital and then also to the other provinces that the emperor uh, must have been dead uh, and uh, even when you know uh, some letters were sent uh, through other means uh, you know some some correspondence were held between the emperor and one of these three brothers and most importantly uh, with Aurangzeb they would simply uh, not take these letters seriously they would just say that it must have been the case that uh, the emperor is uh, now an invalid and uh, Darashiko is uh, controlling him. So uh, Isabeg was, uh, you know, by Dara, uh, Dara's foolish act was uh, to send Isabeg uh, to Aurangzeb and give some sort of, uh, you know, uh, a signal for a treaty. And uh, this move backfired because Isabeg went to uh, Aurangzeb and simply told him that um, now the emperor is so weak that he cannot uh, control the affairs of the empire and it is Dara who has become the de facto uh, emperor. And uh, very naturally Aurangzeb was enraged and uh, he found his uh, resolve to attack the capital uh, redoubled. So there is nothing wrong in the depiction of uh, Tarashiko conspiring something uh, because that would be very natural for him to do that. And uh, what was the other question? I think, yeah, about uh, Jazia tax. So uh, I must say that I have not uh, particularly looked at the uh, taxing policy, but as far as I'm aware, uh, Tarashiko had actually been uh, quite kind to certain sections of the uh, common people. And especially the peasants from uh, the Punjab and uh, Western UP region, uh, because there are instances, recorded instances, where uh, certain feudal lords in those areas had been exacting more taxes than they should have. And uh, there were uh, representations from the peasants uh, to the imperial court, and Dara, uh, uh, who was the mediator of such things, had uh, interacted with them and he had actually uh, you know uh, made the emperor let go of all those taxes and he also made sure that uh, the feudal lords were exacting more taxes uh, than were necessary uh, are punished so um, that sort of information uh, is what i presently have but i cannot throw more light on the uh, jazia tax
as far as Darashiko's reign is concerned, or you know, his uh, de facto reign is concerned. But the translations were not so much his own uh, as uh, they were commissioned by him because you know uh, he Allahabad and uh, the regions in uh, in and around Banaras. So he had access to all the renowned uh, Hindu pundits, the Brahmins, who were uh, you know the scholars of uh, Vedanta and so on. And he had uh, uh, employed them in order to uh, do these translations. And also, uh, this will be interesting to uh, uh, note here that he had uh, in his employment somebody called Chandrabhan, who was uh, knower of Persian and Sanskrit, both these languages. So he might have some knowledge of Sanskrit, but it, it will perhaps be an exaggeration to say that the translations were uh, done by Darashiko himself. Uh, although we can say that uh, he took the initiative and uh, these translations came into existence because of him and he led the whole project. Uh, someone said that his work towards uh, you know, uh, translating our book is noble. I don't think so. Someone stealing your knowledge, someone actually translating it and using it for their good use cannot be called that it was a religious work. Uh, my question is that from what little I have read, I there is two distinct things that I have read. One is that Darashiko was a religious fanatic and needed the military might to actually further his uh, cause. Aurangzeb, on the other hand, was a, had the military might and later used you know, the religion to actually further his vision. So if you look at this part, it is almost like choosing between, if you talk about past, that would you rather be bitten by a cobra or would you want to be killed by a python? So in either ways, we were any which way going to be massacred as we have been. So now here the point is that, do you think that the lesson for the Hindus is stop glorifying one brother because you hate the other one and look at the history from every perspective? You know, just because Dara Shiko read the books, translated the books, does not mean he's a good guy. He's not. His record does not speak so. Do you think that should be the lesson? At least that's the lesson from me from this talk. Thank you. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting way to put it. Um, and uh, a little too polemical, if I might uh, say so. Uh, but uh, yeah, firstly, uh, talking about uh, um, the translations that he, was, he, he had commissioned and uh, the kind of... Uh, a project uh, he had undertaken and what what could have been if any the ultimate or ulterior even motives that he had in getting those texts translated uh one cannot uh, know for sure but this is something that i have alluded to uh, during my talk towards the beginning that uh, darashiko was a devout muslim first and foremost and uh, he uh, was trying to find the resonance of the very distinctly Islamic concept of monotheism, uh, which is Tawhid, in the other religions of the world. So it is not so much of trying to get at the truth of other religions, but rather finding the truth of one's own religion reflected, echoed in the other religions. So he was sort of trying to seek validation, you might say, of Islam, or rather, more specifically, the Islamic idea of Tawhid in the other religions. That, I think, might be, um, you know, a better way of putting it. And uh, what was the other question? I think yeah, about writing of history. So, 
yeah i mean i alluded to this when i was engaging with the question of what if so there is a distinct danger in uh, romanticizing these possibilities especially when you have the distinct experience of uh, not finding out not deriving any real good uh, in terms of your self ex expression and finding your self confidence as a nation uh, through the long reigns of people like akbar and jahangir and shah jahan mind you each of these three great mughals akbar shah jahan and uh, akbar jahangir and shah jahan uh, they were constantly fighting the rajput kings and uh, it was only at the time of uh, shah jahan or not exactly at the time of shah jahan but rather at the time of uh, jahangir it was khurram uh, shah jahan uh, did not become shah jahan at, at that time it was simply khurram one of the sons of uh, jahangir who had defeated uh, rana amar singh and that was a very very important victory for the mughals because with that the annexation of almost the whole of rajputana was made possible for the mughals uh, in terms of what sort of cultural uh, good that has done to uh, the nation as a whole hardly any so if you uh, ask this question and i think it is very important to ask it uh, by anybody who's uh, thinking of writing histories or engaging with history what is the reason or what what are the chief goals with which we uh, write history what is the purpose of historiography so to speak so i believe that uh, the purpose of historiography uh, is to get at the truth of one's self consciousness as a nation when you are uh, you know uh, as an indian or as a hindu or as an indic person you are trying to find your own voice you are trying to find your uh, freedom in expressing yourself in the cultural sphere when you are trying to break the shackles of cultural dominance by uh, foreign powers or inimical uh, forces then you try to narrate your own history and you try to build your own identity through that particular action of writing history and if that purpose is not if that purpose is not served then there is hardly any any value that can be derived through the act of writing history or historiography so uh, if we are engaging with the history of darashiko or any of the mughals then we have to constantly keep asking ourselves what purpose is it serving in order to uh, find our own voice uh, and uh, getting at our own identity expressing our self consciousness as well as self confidence is it giving us self confidence or is it uh, actually harming our self confidence so if we can uh, you know keep these two considerations in mind when we are engaging with history or when we are trying to write history self confidence and self uh, expression as a nation 
or as a representative of the national consciousness, then I think the purpose of writing history will be served. Hope that helps. It is a fact that Darashiko was not, uh, you know, somebody who was hated by the people. Okay, so he enjoyed uh, quite a bit of influence among the among certain sections. For example, the case of the peasants, which I cited, he had mediated between these peasants and the uh, emperor. He had done exactly what these uh, peasants were demanding from them, from him, from the emperor. So uh, it is quite possible that when he was in dire straits, when he was uh, publicly parodied on the streets of Delhi, feel grief and people would be protesting. Uh, and in fact, there are descriptions from, I think, the um, accounts of uh, Benier, uh, or maybe the Benier, I cannot recall uh, the exact uh, account in this case, but uh, there are, uh, you know, such accounts where uh, it is described that the public and people who have gathered, uh, you know, on both sides of the streets are uh, protesting, they are unhappy at the sight of Darashiko and his uh, child being parodied. Uh, but perhaps it will be uh, pertinent to ask the question, what uh, are the factors uh, which brought Darashiko and his family to such dire straits? And that is what I was uh, engaging with. There is a comment by the Panjriji uh, that Akbar was not as great as he was made out to be and he had destroyed temples. He was a Qatar Muslim for the longest time and he turned more towards Jainism later in life. So, if you'd like to remark on that, whether he, uh, you know, actually did all these things and he engaged with Jainism, yeah, there are there are uh, accounts of uh, Akbar destroying temples, uh, of course, uh, but I cannot really uh, verify whether he uh, turned towards Jainism. Uh, my idea is that he tried to evolve a theology of his own, which he did not really name. You know, he did not give any distinct name to it. The name Dini uh, Ilahi that is uh, attached to this particular theology uh, was actually uh, a work of the courtiers uh, in Akbar's uh, court. So it was uh, post Akbar's uh, you know, uh, conception of this theology. Yes, but I, I'm, I'm not sure whether he specifically engaged with the uh, ideas of uh, Jain theology or uh, Jain philosophy for that matter. Thank you, Thank you for loving me. I, my comment was because um, I think some uh, one of the uh, questions were, was uh, with regard to, you know, how Akbar was uh, looking and so on as we've been taught. And it's only the last some years that even I've gotten to know so much about what Akbar really did and how it's all just been sort of airbrushed by history. I'm more... Uh, you know, in keeping with Jasodari's comment that we should really not romanticize uh, the Mughals, uh, the Mughal kings uh, too much because they had an agenda very clearly and they were following uh, what they had to. So Darashiko is a little bit of an interesting, maybe an outlier kind of character. And just Shijiji, going back to what you were describing about him, he somehow, for some reason, I was amused, reminded me a little bit about Rahul Gandhi. I mean, <laughs> you know, generally entitlement has sub hai. He wants to do good. He says he wants to do good, but but we don't know. That that was what I had intended with the Akbar uh, comment. That just to point out that not to, so that we don't get into this. You know, he was a good guy. You know, that that's. I mean, uh, 
Yeah, so the only comment that I will make in this regard is that uh, maybe uh, you and others, uh, we all should engage uh, with that particular period in uh, Darashiko's life uh, when he was aged between 30 and uh, 42. And this is the time when he spent his, uh, uh, his life with um, uh, his father, by the side of his father, and the kind of uh, lavish income that his father had thrown at him uh, the ranks, high ranks uh, that were given to him, and also the uh, you know influence that was given to him by attaching fifty thousand horses and so on. Uh, all these things are uh, you know uh, they make for a good parallel. I think that's all I would say. Uh, hi, Shrijitji. So my question is a little sidetracked, I should say, but I'll make it quick. Uh, so. I mean, it's apparent from your talk that, you know, it's, uh, Hindu Rajputs had definitely a very high position in the Mughal court, even during the time of Aurangzeb, during the time of Shah Jahan and so on. And uh, Mirza Raja Jaising was the most prominent uh, person with respect to that. So in your studies, have you come across, you know, the restrictions that were imposed upon Hindus in the court of Aurangzeb or Shah Jahan? Like, for example, you know, should they wear a tikka or should they not wear a tikka or something like that? The reason why I ask this question is, uh, you know, the recently released movie, Tanhaji, in which, you know, the depiction of Rajputs like, you know, Uday Bhan and Jai Singh were, was more Islamic than Hindu. So, though, I mean, it is obvious that, you know, Bollywood, you know, it, it kind of does a, you know, black and white depiction, uh, exaggerated depictions of, you know, the good and the evil or whatever. But then with respect to this, I'd just like to know from you, how Hindu were the Rajputs who served in the court of the I mean, who served in the court of the Mughals? So um, Jai Singh himself was quite a bit of a liberal in the sense that there are accounts uh, where we get to see Jai Singh sharing uh, food with one of the Mughal, one of the members of the, uh, the Muslim nobility. And at his time, you know, in the, you know, the mid 17th century, it would be something of an outrage for an Hindu uh, man or anybody who uh, is from uh, a noble Hindu family to be sharing uh, food uh, with, uh, with a Muslim. So uh, it, is, it is something like uh, marriage. Uh, that was uh, a taboo. Uh, so uh, this taboo was no taboo for Jaising, at least. That is clear. So this is the only thing that I have come across while studying um, you know, the times of Darashiko and Aurangzeb, but uh, whether they were allowed to wear or, you know, display uh, the signs of their Hinduness, uh, wearing tikka, etc. I, I cannot really throw much light on that, but there is this particular account where, you know, I, I don't know what motivated Jai Singh to do so, uh, you know, whether he was uh, of that sort of disposition, whether he had, you know, a personality which was more liberal, or whether he was trying to appease uh, you know, uh, the person who met him. Because he had the uh, motive of judging, uh, you know, the, testing the waters of the times of Darashiko. He could not really trust this man who he knew to be utterly incompetent uh, as far as rulership is concerned. And therefore, he was testing the waters uh, while interacting with uh, different people who were being sent to him uh, from Shuja uh, and this particular person from uh, you know uh, who with who he shared his food uh, he came from Shuja okay the governor in Bengal so uh, there might be motivations uh, in the mind of uh, Jai Singh to 
appease uh, certain persons at certain occasions. So whether he was uh, predisposed to uh, liberal uh, behavior himself, I cannot really uh, make an informed comment on that, but there we have this account with us.